Hello, welcome to a live two-part series podcast where my colleagues and I attempt to discuss the implications of racial liberalism in the context of the American justice system. Joining me in this episode is my colleague Paul Hong and her friend Arisa Herman. Paula, do you want to introduce Arisa? Sure. Arisa is a junior in the School of Foreign Service studying international politics. She is a member of Delta Phi Epsilon, also known as DPE, a professional foreign service sorority where she resides on the board. I was actually going to ask Arisa to talk more about how she first got interested in DPE and feminism overall. Yeah, um, so I've always been interested in feminism. I was involved in a club in high school called Girls Learn International, which kind of worked with girls' education. And then when I got to college, I really was missing kind of a strong female network and that source of empowerment in my life. So I joined DPE, which is a really wonderful organization in that it really works to uplift women and support them. And so even though we're a professional foreign service sorority, there's women from all different backgrounds with all different professional interests. And we help each other, not just professionally, but socially as well. Like I know that if it's 2 a.m. and I need someone to proofread a cover letter or an essay, I can always reach out. Or if I have questions about how to apply for jobs or how to apply for fellowships or even how to run a storage unit for my, you know, to move out of my dorm, whatever it is, that I can always turn to DPE. And so for me, it's been a really important and fundamental part of my Georgetown experience that I've had this strong group of women behind me every step of the way. Well, Arisa, that sounds like a great support network you have on campus. Um, And I have a question for you. Do you think that racism and sexism should be treated equally Are they two separate issues, or do you think they come together somehow? Yeah, so I think while they're distinct issues, it's very important to understand the ways in which they intersect. Um, And I think it's very difficult to talk about racism or sexism in a bubble, right? And to kind of think of them as completely isolated issues when, in fact, it's very important to understand the ways in which your race doesn't necessarily act independently of your gender or your sex or your expression of either. And so I think oftentimes one of the frustrating things, especially within the feminist movement as a whole, is that there's not a lot of talk about intersectionality and the specific um, place in which race and gender meet. And as a mixed race woman myself, I think that's something that I think about a lot is that how is the way in which I interact with the world and the world in turn interacts with me affected not just by the fact that I'm a woman, but also by the fact that I'm biracial and that I visibly look biracial. So you talk about your, you identify as biracial, Mm -hmm. but also as a woman, have you ever felt like the government had unjustly intervened in your life, say putting a tax on feminine hygiene products? Yeah. So I spent a lot of my life growing up in California in which I'm I know I'm lucky there in that we've had a lot of uh, government support behind certain measures like abortion and other things. But even in California, which is considered to be this incredibly liberal state, the government still taxes tampons, pads, menstrual products as a luxury item. And I actually remember writing a letter about this for our class, but it's really important in that there was a bill that went through our state legislature a few years ago that was supposed to try and repeal the tampon tax because right now their tax is a luxury good, basically it's something that's not essential to your life. Right. Um, and the sponsors of this bill basically raised the point that it's ridiculous that menstrual products are taxed as a luxury good when Viagra and 
orange trees and all these random mm-hmm. things are not taxed as luxury goods, right? Like, what makes Viagra an essential good, but a tampon is not? And I think it's the same in D.C., actually, where tampons and pads are still considered a luxury item. Yeah. But let me tell you, it's also not- as a woman, those are not luxury items yeah. or for luxury purposes at all. Absolutely. And they're also very expensive as they are without the tax added on top of them. I mean, I remember looking into the background of this and, you know, the average woman's going to spend tens of thousands of dollars in her lifetime on menstrual goods alone, right? And in California, when you add a 9% sales tax on top of that, that's ridiculous. It adds up to so much money. And so our governor actually vetoed the bill. It passed the state legislature. Our governor vetoed it because he basically said that it's too key to the state budget and that they can't afford to cut it, which is also ridiculous because California has a budget surplus, but um, I digress. And I know as a woman, that definitely was one of the instances where I just got really, really angry. And I was like, look, I've, you know, we talk about our government is supposed to be kind of this representative of the people. Um, Mm. As a Californian, I've always been like, I'm really lucky that I don't have to fight my government for access to Planned Parenthood, to access to, you know, clinics and things like that. But even in such a liberal state, my government still failed me by basically saying, no, the fact that you bleed every month is a luxury. And so that's definitely been incredibly frustrating for me and one of the instances of many, I mean, where the government has intervened in my life as a woman. Yeah, I agree. That is incredibly frustrating. And I know that actually in a lot of schools, there have been movements to allow for free menstrual products in bathrooms where they previously had charge students for it Um, but unfortunately there was backlash to that as well yeah and I mean you also have to consider again talking about the intersection of race and gender the fact and socioeconomic status here as well when you're charging this kind of money it disproportionately affects women of color who are already likely to make less much more than it does you know most white women and so that's something also important to consider is that even something like a you know, menstrual products tasks, which seems at first to be a solely feminism issue, is much more than that because it disproportionately affects different women based on your mm. socioeconomic status and your race or your, the physical expression of your ethnic identity. Yeah. Well, yeah. hopefully we'll see more positive changes because of the women in Congress and how the numbers have increased. Thankfully. We can hope. Yes, <laughs> finally. Um, well, thank you for that. I guess looking a little more big picture, what are some other ways that you think that the state views and treats the female body differently from the male body. And, you know, with our theme, again, of this intersectionality of race and gender, do you think that race plays a further role in this treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think racism and sexism both are institutionalized within the United States government. And we can talk about all these measures that have been put in place in order to try and develop that over the years, but the fact remains that women, even after the, you know, latest midterms, women are still ridiculously underrepresented in mm-hmm. Congress, and women of color are even more underrepresented, right? And so that constitutes a problem when you have majority white men representing a country whose demographics are rapidly changing. They are not able to reflect the I the needs of their constituents as accurately because they don't know what it's like to be their constituents, and it's very difficult to advocate for certain issues when, you know, the person who's supposed to be representing you is a 70-year-old white dude, from, yeah. right? So it's, I think it's one of those things where it's 
kind of institutionalized within our government, not just in the ways in which we still see women and women of color and people of color in general restricted from voting and all of those things, but also just in the way that our government is not currently reflective of the actual population of the United States. And that's a huge disconnect, which means that policies and laws and acts that continue to get enacted that do not actually reflect the needs and desires of the population of the United States. Um, I completely agree. And I guess going off of that, I know you've had the wonderful opportunity to not only live in San Francisco, but also in Tokyo, Sydney, and Italy. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you noticed any differences in the way that the government treats females and bodily autonomy rights in these countries compared to in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, each country is really different, so I can kind of go through it briefly, but um, I know for sure issues of female bodily autonomy are even worse in places like Japan just because it's not something that's talked about at Mm -hmm. all. Japan is a country which, you know, I mean, I love it. I'm a Japanese citizen. I've spent a lot of my life living there. But it still incredibly has rigid gender roles in which women are expected to stay at home, not, you know, work only for a few years and then, you know, live with the children and take care of them while the men go to work. And men are not involved at all with the family. And so there's this very kind of rigid partition, especially outside of Tokyo itself, um, of the way women are treated. And because of that, you don't see women's issues represented in the government because the government can kind of ignore them as a silent voice in the population. Um, It's, I mean, I don't know if you guys heard, but there was recently a scandal even in Japan where a medical school was accused of basically changing the, like, scores of female applicants to lower the amount of women who are able to matriculate into this incredibly prestigious medical school. (sighs) Right? (laughs) Which is incredibly frustrating, and the government, you know condemned it, but they didn't really do anything to the school. They didn't really sanction them. They didn't really do anything. Um, and that seems to be the case for a lot of East Asian countries, though. Yeah. I mean, Korea just had their Me Too movement, and through their movement, a lot of South Korean women brought to light how many years that they had been oppressed. Yeah. And it's just the nature of the culture is so different there where women still feel like they can't have the autonomy, the same autonomy that they deserve. I mean, sexual harassment was getting so bad on the Japanese subway that they literally have women-only cars now because it's such an issue, which, you know, kind of brings to light the whole thing about how, okay, the fact that this exists is awful, but you're literally solving the issue by creating separate cars for women. You're not teaching men not to sexually harass women, mm-hmm. right? You're treating the symptoms without treating the issue. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, it's even more extreme in that, you know, things like Me Too haven't reached Japan yet. Yeah. And there's still this very, like, heavy cultural pressure to not speak out, to not bring that shame upon your family, upon yourself, and the stigma that's associated with these issues, um, which is... I think less prominent in the United States it's definitely less prominent in Australia um, and in terms of Italy you see it a little bit with Italy being a very Catholic country and I think there's a lot of issues that we faced with sexual harassment there as well um, but it's it's just it's so different kind of culturally around the world I think there is a movement of trying to elevate women's voices but it's slow going and I think it's difficult to kind of 
express these issues when there's still very much cultural pressure to be quiet and to be silent, and that exists in every country as well. So, Arisa, there is this great book by Dorothy Roberts called Killing the Black Body on race, reproduction, and how those affect a woman's right to liberty. In the book, she talks about how a female slave did not have the parental right to her child as a direct result of her status and race. Today, with racial intermarriage, some women have or may have children who look of a different race from them. So I was just wondering, as someone who identifies as mixed race, has this ever posed a challenge in your life? Oh, yeah. Uh, Countless times. (laughs) Um, I mean, so my mom's from Japan. My dad's Australian, and he's, you know, he looks white. So it's... And I don't really look 100% Asian or 100% white. Um, It's kind of... I look ethnically ambiguous for... the large part and so there's been countless times there in my life where people didn't think my parents were my parents or so you know like they'd be I'd be with my mom and they'd be really really surprised and they'd be like really this is your kid or you know when I was really little and I looked a little bit more Asian um I'd be you know with my dad and people would be really concerned and they'd be following us around the store and they'd be like are you you okay like do you know this man (laughs) It's like he's my dad. <laughs> of course, yeah. I know him. But you know, this, this image of a white man with a young Asian girl was really concerning to some people for some reason. Mm. Um, and or you know, there's other times where my sister and I were out with my mom, and people thought that she was the nanny because she was Asian, and we didn't really look like her. So it's definitely played a role in my life and it's played a massive role in kind of how I see the world and how my family identifies because it's something that we always have to be conscious of Mm. um and it's even you know in a place that's superficially liberal where there are other you know families of mixed race that I were our friends growing up um it's still there's a sometimes a lot of cultural pressure and Mm-hmm. Um, stigma, you can feel people watching, you can feel people judging you because they're just not sure what to make of you. And so I guess tying it back to one of the themes of this episode where maybe social pressures don't intervene, your, or not just social pressures intervene your life, but also the government, what is your, what is your thought, I guess, about the recent threat posed by the president who wanted to end U.S. birthright citizenship? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be an American citizen if it wasn't for birthright citizenship. Mm. I mean, I was born in the U.S., that's the reason I have U.S. citizenship. My dad didn't get American citizenship until I was probably about 12 or 13, and my mom only got U.S. citizenship this past summer, which Mm. which is kind of... So for the vast majority of my life, my parents weren't American citizens, Um, and... Sorry, I'm so. smiling because I wanted to say congrats. But I don't know if no, that's yeah, something no, that you should be totally. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, it's kind of cute. She was like, she's never voted in an election in her life because, you know, she's, she was, um, she didn't have a chance to vote in elections in Japan. And then she came to the U.S. and she wasn't citizen, so she couldn't vote for most right. of her life here. Yeah. So it was really cute. She voted in the midterms and she had like a little sticker and she Aww. sent me a selfie of it. She's like, I voted. And it was so the cute. cutest thing I've <laughs> ever really seen. Um, Sorry, you were yeah. saying. No, um... Where was I? It was kind of... Oh, the birthright. The birthright citizenship, right, of course. Um, So I think that's incredibly frustrating to me because, you know, for this, there's so many people who are in my situation who would not be American citizens 
if birthright citizenship were taken away, but we identify as American. We spent our entire lives here. We, you know, are Americans and our families being immigrants doesn't make us less American. It makes us more American, right? This is a country that was built on immigration that, you know, was built on the layering and mixing of all these different cultures. And for, you know, if you go back a couple generations, Trump's family are immigrants too. So (laughs) to me, I think it's really this awful expression of xenophobia, of racism, of kind of, you know, a lot of the problematic policies of the Trump administration that he's taking away birthright citizenship because I fundamentally think birthright citizenship is an expression of why the U.S. is the way it is and some of the things that make it, you know, uniquely American, that make it uniquely, that are a strength, right? Like, I think that melting pot culture of the U.S. is something that serves to its benefit and that affecting birthright citizenship would only hurt that. Yeah. Well, so thank you for your time. This is our last question. Um, And I apologize, these questions are hard to answer, but Mm -hmm. I guess looking forward, how do you think that this great intersectionality between, um, you know, movements for greater racial equality and also Mm -hmm. for greater gender equality, then also this intersectionality within each movement, how do you think that this can be addressed in order to further change and rights for such individuals? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really big question to answer and that I don't know if there necessarily is one right way to answer that question. Um, I think in general, there needs to be greater understanding on both sides of the inherent intersectionality of issues of race and gender. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the f- issues of feminism I've been involved with, that's something that we've really try to grapple with as well as to what extent are you being conscious of intersectionality and the various ways in which that can manifest not just with the race but also with you know socioeconomic status and immigration status and all these you know many different factors in which you know a person that affects the way in which a person views the world and the world treats them so I think it's a matter of conscious awareness of that within each movement right like that you are not promoting your issue within a bubble and that there's many people who are affected by your movement who are also affected in different ways by other movements and that that can act in different layers of oppression um but also in getting people who experience the world through these intersectional ways in positions of leadership within these movements because it's very difficult again um when you see some of these movements to feel represented by them when you're like, oh, this is not, this might be a feminist movement, but it's not for me because it's all white women, or this is a movement for racial equality, but I don't feel like I belong because it's a lot of, you know, men who are saying, you know, talking about a very specific way in which their race affects the way they've been treated, right? Like, I mean, for instance, Black Lives Matter movement is incredibly important and it's incredibly impactful, but for a long time it was also very male-dominated. And now we're seeing a lot more women in it, but it's still kind of, you know, like one of those things in which there's, I think, an imbalance of intersectionality or Mm. the Women's March on Washington. Like, for a long time it was a lot of white women who were involved with it, and there's a certain privilege in being able to protest like that, and there's a certain privilege in being able to intercept interact with law enforcement in that way and so you know that's also an issue in which there was some lacking of intersectionality there so I think this is a very long-winded answer to your question (laughs) it's a it's a a big question but I think there's 
an onus on the participants in each movement to recognize the ways in which their issue has intersectional applications and to get people who are affected by intersectionality personally into positions of leadership because they are able to have personal views of those um, broader implications that may be limiting elsewise. Well, Arisa, I am extremely fortunate to call you my friend, and <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you again for your of time. Course. And Caroline, do you yes. have anything to add? No, just thank you so much. I yeah, really enjoyed course. meeting you today. Thank Thanks you for, for inviting your time. me. <laughs>